Hello. Please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill, where you get two film and or media discussions for the price of one, which is uh, nothing. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to randomly select the yin and yang of a double feature. One will have two good movies, the other two bad. Both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for each episode. Do you feel lucky? Do ya, punk? I am Adam Dirty Feet, whatever you want to call it, Thomas. And I am Thomas Mariani, and I ain't happy, I'm feeling glad, because I got sunshine in a bag. Oh, yeah, well, that's good for you. <laughs> In case you couldn't tell by our clever little intros there, um, the topic for this week's edition of Double Edge Double Bill is the works of actor, director, and guy who talks to an empty chair, Clint Eastwood. Dude, the the consummate tough guy. Like, is there anyone tougher in Hollywood? Uh, that audience uh, that was watching him talk to a chair. That was a pretty tough audience. That's a pretty tough audience, that's true. Yeah, anyway. Uh, but no, I, I mean, I agree. I do really enjoy Clint Eastwood, especially just as, like, he's very much a distinctive presence, and to his credit, keeps on working. Uh, well into his 80s now, uh, almost 90, I think, at this point, and he made two movies this year. Yeah, he's uh, he's showing no signs of slowing down. He literally just wants that Lifetime Achievement Oscar. Oh, like I think, I, I think that's what he's gained for. I mean, if we're talking just directorial movies, they're pretty much, I, what would you say, 75, 25? 75 good? 75 uh, that record's a bit more spotty as of recent, especially. <laughs> well, I mean, Gran Torino was great, but you had that fucking, that really bad one. Specifying. <laughs> I don't even remember that. The 10 whatever to Paris. Oh, 1517 to Paris. That was the other one this year. And we should mention we're doing this because The Mule is coming out the week that we're releasing this. His movie where he's running drugs for a Mexican drug cartel. I have zero hopes for it, but I'm very interested. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, it's like, oh man, he he pulled in every favor he possibly could for this cast. It's a huge cast. Yep. Hey, Bradley, I got you that Oscar nomination. Get out of directing A Star is Born and come here. Wait, he got Bradley Cooper for what movie? American Sniper. Oh my god, I forgot that was a Clint movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What are you talking about? <laughs> Best baby in cinema history, Adam. Oh my god, that is the worst. How can you beat Bradley Cooper making a baby's arm move with its thumb clearly on the screen? Obviously. I mean, obviously. That scene is so worth watching for any acting class. It's just like, here is a performer in desperation. Yeah. <laughs> Here's what you don't want to do. Well, no, it's not that. It's, like, just so much credit to Bradley Cooper. Like, he is so trying in that terrible scene to make this feel somewhat real. But he can't. And it's a symptom of, admittingly, to get back to Clint Eastwood, of his very infamous lack of wanting to do more than one take for any scene. Yeah, right. In fact, I was listening to... Uh, I listened to uh, Mark Maron's podcast a lot. He's had several actors on there who have been in Clint movies... And they always bring that up, like, no, nah, Clint just does one take. 
And like, even if I didn't think I had it, Clint's like, no, we're moving. I'm like, oh, okay, fuck, let's just keep the ball rolling. Which speaks to his efficiency, if not necessarily his overall craft, yes. as of especially recent. You can tell, it's like, man, you really could have done a second take. Come on, man. Right. <laughs> just, <laughs> uh, but uh, we need to get to the nature of this intro, which is the picking of our good and our bad feature, which, if you're new... Um, each week, Adam and I come to the table with two movies, and we switch off on the quality, uh, because one will have two good movies and the other one two bad ones, as we mentioned in our intro, um, and both of us assign numbers to those two movies, and the other one has to pick a number between one and ten, and whichever number we pick uh, that gets closest to the other choice, that ends up being both a good and a bad movie. Adam's got the two good movies this time, I've got the two bad ones. Um, but Adam, I need to pick a number between 1 and 10 for your two good Clint Eastwood movies. And keep in mind also, we open this up to movies he either just starred in, or also had some sort of behind-the-scenes directorial or written quality. Right. Right. Because he directs and stars in The Mule, so of course it's open for everybody. But, for me, I'm gonna pick number... Six. Okay, at number eight, I have, which I honestly do feel is the best uh, directed movie by Clint Eastwood, uh, Perfect World. I've not seen this one. Oh, dude. Starring Kevin Costner and Clint Eastwood. Oh, my God, it's such a good movie. Oh, I'm so glad you haven't seen it. I'm so glad you haven't seen it. I've heard this. I've never actually seen it, so I'm I'm very curious about that one. And what was your other choice? uh, Number two, I had In the Line of Fire. With Clint Eastwood and John Malkovich. That's pretty good. Because of John Malkovich, especially. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, <laughs> you yeah. can't go too wrong. That's but, that's probably his one of his best performances. But, but speaking uh, of wrong, Adam. Yeah. Fuck me. Uh, I'm going to go number three. All right. At number two, I had uh, Clint, along with probably his best uh, on-screen. The goddamn monkey, I swear to God. You know, Adam... You can't go any which way but loose. <laughs> you motherfucker. <laughs> I knew it. I fucking knew it. Which, for those of you who don't know, this is a movie where Clint Eastwood was piled around with an orangutan. The first one of two. Yeah. And what was your second pick? Uh, my second pick was, I think, one you probably would have had more issue with, to be fair. Which was the infamously awful musical Paint Your Wagon. Oh, thank God. Okay, yeah, alright. I'm good with that. He shares uh, beers with an orangutan. I mean, that's great. I mean, that's true, as opposed to, you know, Paint Your Wagon, which all you really need to see of Paint Your Wagon, folks, is the Simpsons parody. It says everything that needs to be said. That was so good. Paint the Wagon red with blood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, there's Lee Marvin. He's always crazy and drunk. Oh. Uh, but yeah, that, that'll that be a, a curious double feature, um, and we'll get into all that punks right after this he just broke out are you gonna shoot me me and your friends he just found out you got no problem if i handle this now the rest of texas better watch out we got an armed killer and an innocent boy out there you're not bad are you butch oh yeah a perfect world directed by clint eastwood look for it on video cassette And we are back, and uh, we've brought along a guest. He is a guest you've heard before. He's the first three-time guest on the show. He's basically our Alec Baldwin for our SNL. Uh, it is Mr. Sam Bertuxen. Sam, how are you doing? We're Steve Martin. 
<laughs> you beat Steve Martin. I guess Tori DePinas are Steve Martin. Oh, because okay. he's, he's, he's been on it twice, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, right. But uh, Adam and I really wanted you back on, Sam, because we love having you here. Uh, well, hold on, hold on. Wait. I wanted to have you on. Adam <laughs> fought it tooth and nail at every second. <laughs> Adam was like, well... There's a movie featuring orangutan. I guess we can have him on. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I I at least wanted to invite you back on, and I told you, oh yeah, we're doing a Clint Eastwood episode, and you immediately came on like, holy fuck, really? Why Clint Eastwood, Sam? Well, it's the simple fact I mostly resonated with his uh, performances in Man With No Name trilogy, uh, mostly with The Good, Bad, and The Ugly. Um, That really resonated with me when I was younger, especially with me and my dad. It was kind of like a... A bonding experience watching uh, those movies. I watched Dirty Harry like a while ago, and then like I'm more surprisingly decently well acquainted with some of his recent stuff. Very interested to hear your opinions then on the two movies we have here. Let's get to our first feature, which is A Perfect World, which came out in 1993 and does feature Clint Eastwood in it. Though interestingly enough, uh, he is second billed to Kevin Costner, and I found this out, this is the first time in several decades where he was second billed. Last time was uh, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, and deserved, because he's not in this movie as much, and it is very much Costner's show, obviously. Mm. Yeah, but he, I mean, I also picked this because he directs it as well. Right, obviously, and obviously, as you mentioned, Adam, this was your pick, so uh, why this movie in particular? Alright, now, it has been quite a long time since I've seen this movie. I saw it probably for the last time, in the 90s, if not the mid to the late 90s. I don't think I saw it when it first came out. I mean, I might have, but I was only 10. And it just always resonated with me. Like, I always felt bad for the little boy in it, and I always remember Costner being so awesome in it. And uh, I watched it again. Uh, I mean, I still like it. It's dated. But I just, for some reason, it always stuck in there with me, especially Kevin Costner. He reminds me almost like William Hurt, in a lot of the, his roles where he's just so like dry and understated, but sometimes it really works and pops and sometimes it, it definitely does not. And then you have Waterworld and then oh. nothing works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's just, and this is the first movie other than the Spaghetti Westerns that I want to say that I saw Clint Eastwood in. I'm sure I saw Dirty Harry when I was a kid too, but I just, I don't remember it. And then of course I've watched them all since, but I think this was my first post western uh eastwood movie that i saw well it's interesting because this is definitely the first time i'd seen it and i have a lot of thoughts on it but sam had you seen this prior uh no actually i i was shocked that i never even heard of this honestly this is like around the time when you got stuff like forrest gump like i enjoy forrest gump but it, it had a very similar like early 90s oscar baby type feel to it especially going toward the third act that felt weirdly artificial to me personally I will say it is commonly made. There are some some sequences in there that are very interesting and and very surprisingly, like, comedic the way they're put together. (laughs) Especially the part where uh, uh, the the, the truck detaches from the trailer. Uh, That was very shockingly kind of comedic for a movie that was about uh, some convict who kidnaps a kid. Well, I mean, I can agree to some extent with that. I think it has something to do with less Eastwood's direction and more... The screenwriter is John Lee Hancock, who would later go on to direct and write a lot of movies that I do agree are very schmaltzy in this way, like The Blind Side or Saving Mr. Banks. Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? (laughs) But, you know, I think maybe that perspective also kind of affected me with this one, because this is the first time I'd seen it, and I really dug A Perfect World, in all honesty. I think 
what works about this is the fact that, because we haven't mentioned much about the basic plot, is it takes place in, like, the early 60s. They mentioned President Kennedy's coming to Texas, so spoilers for that future <laughs> event. Not to blow your mind. <laughs> Indeed. But in Texas, uh, Kevin Costner plays a guy who, along with his buddy, escapes out of prison, who I found out that uh, buddy, his name is Keith... I'm sorry, I can't pronounce your last name. I don't know how the hell to pronounce it. It's like It's like a bunch of consonants. That guy would later become a voice actor, and also he would fill out to be the guy in The Dark Knight, who the Joker takes hostage in the police station. Well, really? Oh my god, it is. I know, right? I, I thought he looked familiar, and then I looked it up like, oh shit. Uh, but anyway, the two of them escape prison in the 60s in Texas, and they end up running into a uh, suburban neighborhood, and they come across this Jehovah's Witness family, and they take the young boy hostage. And from there, Kevin Costner eventually ditches that one guy, in a very little way, and goes cross-country, essentially to try and get to the border of Texas, while at the same time, Clint Eastwood plays uh, Texas Marshall, who is chasing after him. And there's some things that could seem conventional, but I think what really works is... I'm not a big Kevin Costner fan in general. I find him to be kind of bland and familiar in a lot of roles that I've seen him in. But I'm mostly familiar with, like, his sort of his heyday movies, where it's just, like, Waterworld, like Sam mentioned, or Dances with Wolves, you know, just, like, he's very typical, I'm a white male protagonist type. And Mm -hmm. what I like about A Perfect World is I think it's an extremely complex role for Costner to play, because while you're kind of rooting on his side at the same time, you also do realize this dude is too far gone. He's crazy. Dude. He's a fucked up person. And yeah. I think the movie does a great job of balancing his character the whole time. Because you can tell while he does care about this kid, at the same time, he's totally manipulating him the whole time. And I love that performance so much. That I think it elevates material that, admittingly, on an outline perspective, is very familiar, kind of rote. I have most of my problems are script-wise, particularly, (laughs) I mentioned this to Sam, it's weird that the last episode you were on, our Dinosaurs episode, you talked about a 1993 movie with Laura Dern in it, and we're also doing that now. (laughs) Which had shots that look like, 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 man, where are the brachiosaurus at? When are they going to come here? Because there's a shot that's like near a lake and is positioned similar enough to that one shot. With the, the Brachiosaur and then Laura Dern and Sam Neill looking up and saying, oh, it's beautiful. Like, I was waiting for that to happen. I mean, yeah, you could just do that with the Texas Fields. My God, they do move in Hertz. They do <laughs> move in Hertz. I, like, I wish they stuck the landing with Laura Dern. Because I think she's a very interesting character, too. And her play off of Clint Eastwood as a Texas Marshal is interesting. But by the end of it, it's just like, oh, wait, she taught Clint Eastwood to be a better person. And she's just off to the sidelines, kind of. Like, stuff like that shows the weaknesses of the script, but the relationship between Costner and the kid, I think, carries it so well in a way that, like I said, it's not just... In a lesser movie, they would make it like, oh, he's the criminal with a heart of gold, but it's like, he's a criminal with a heart of gold, but also, he's an incredibly disturbed, fucked-up person (laughs) on every level. Right, he's a criminal with a heart of gold because he got abused as a child and everything. So he sees another child that's, you know, kind of mixed up and that's the only reason. He was going to kill the one guy right in front of his wife and grandson. I mean, there was no question about it. He would have done it, I think. To kind of piggyback on what you're saying about Laura Dern and how she was kind of underutilized, nobody's as underutilized as Bradley Whitford in this movie. Like, like why is it him? 
I don't know if I quite agree, because obviously Bradley Whitford, for those of you who don't know, you would recognize him like Cabin in the Woods, West Wing, great character actor. What I liked about this was most of his roles tend to be like very talky, very dialogue-driven, and I liked seeing a supporting role from him that was more non-verbally driven. I think that's a very yeah. interesting, different perspective to see from him. Well, let's put it this way. I'm okay with that part of it, but the part that they actually do give him any kind of substantial dialogue is when he's basically cornering and trying to press himself onto Laura Dern. And you're like, this, this, why did he need that character trait? I don't know that that was necessary. I don't think that's necessarily a fault because it's, she's a woman in the 60s who is part of this like big masculine-driven journey to try and find Kevin Costner. I'm not surprised that would happen. And from the sort of silent type from the CIA, I wouldn't be surprised by that at all. I actually liked what they did with that. I thought that really worked for Laura Dern's character. I just wish, like I said, that they stuck the landing with her. How do you, how do you both uh, feel about that one scene where he just, well, spoilers for for his uh, perfect world, but where he just flat out just kills Kevin Costner right there? Because I feel like, first, personally, for me, that was a bit overdone for, for a scene like that. Uh, just because I think if he if he would have just just passed away just just naturally, I think that would have been fine. I think obviously he's there to solidify him as more of the the antagonist or the villain of the movie, and he's already like a really bad person. But I feel like just having him just say, oh, "Fuck it, let's just shoom straight in the heart." Like that might have been a bit much uh, personally for me, but I don't know about how you both feel. I didn't necessarily have a problem with it. It is a little cliche, but my problem with it is it was so, like, telegraphed. You knew it was going to happen. Yeah. Like, I mean, there was no question that as soon as, like, oh, I got something for you, he's like, oh, he's going to shoot him. I don't know. I I do think, though, I agree with you, Sam. If he would have just passed away and been laying there in the field with the money and the Casper mask and whatnot, uh, just dying of the wound from the boy, I think it would have made it more of an impact specifically like he gets a perfect shot at his chest at his heart and i'm like oh i get it he has a broken heart now firstly for me that felt like a bit of symbolism that might have creeped up a bit toward me and just kind of made me feel like eh, he's a bit too thick the guy's already dying just having him just be shot again and specifically just straighten the chest perfectly like i think that was a bit too much for me but but anyway, I, I'm, I'm talking too much about that because I will agree uh, with with you guys about Kevin Cosner because Kevin Cosner pins every scene he's in and he keeps that scene up in, in a way where everything around him actually works because of his own like aura, <laughs> which is shocking to say considering I never would have thought that like Mr. McFarlane USA. <laughs> <laughs> You're the only person that remembers McFarlane USA. Yeah, I don't think so. I, I I did because when I was working in movie theater, like I that's all I kept seeing every time I cleaned the theater. Just, <laughs> that's um, its legacy. Everybody. Uh, back to it, but he really does carry it. And the other thing that really shocked me is a is a revelation. But he reminded me of a manager I had at my, my current job. He doesn't work there anymore, but like his, his mannerisms, the way he talks, his mild ways of showcasing like his psychotic behavior. I was just like, man, I knew someone like this. That's a, and I, that's honestly more of a compliment toward the way he he played his character because it, it did feel very believable. Like he would be very complimentary, but like if if you did something or whatever, like he'd be like, what whatever, I don't care. Like as long as it services him. And as long as you're underneath his his guys, his 
his eyesight, then you're fine. There was one point where you just said, like, you could, like to the kids, it's like, well, why didn't you just leave then? You could have just stayed there. Like, that's how much he dis- doesn't care unless he's he's on his side. He was brainwashing that kid. I mean, he knew the kid was going to come with him, but he just would throw that back in his face. Like, see, you wanted to be with me. Uh, that's what I think, anyways. I don't think... that. I mean, yeah, the kid, of course, had a choice, but I think Kevin... Costner knew that the kid was always going to choose him. Like, there was no question. That's true, but it still shows a very, like, monstrous behavior on his part. Regardless. Oh, yeah, no, he's well, a piece of shit. Dude. Well, no, I, I agree with that, but at the same time, I do believe that as the movie goes along, he did genuinely start to care for that kid at the same time. But he's still a monstrous, manipulative dude. That's what I really dug about this whole movie, is you could easily go either way too far. You could lean into, like, he's an awful piece of shit, or he's like, oh, he's a real down-to-earth, has-a-heart criminal that nobody understands. Mm-hmm. But the movie plays it on such an even keel that I found that so compelling. And I think that's what really drives the movie. Because either if it dipped into either way, I think it would have been a far lesser movie. But I think it's really on the strength of Costner. The, the key example of that is when the kid um, ends up stealing the Casper outfit. And he says, like, stealing is wrong, but... If you need to get something and you're really desperate, it's it's fine to take a loner out. That's a great example of how he's brainwashing that kid, but he's still at least got some interest in this kid's weird fa- fascination with like, oh, I want to do trick-or-treat, I want to do Halloween. It, it draws such a great balancing act that I'm surprised the movie ended up managing to accomplish considering all the hindrances that it does have on the page. Well, and, and even the adults that are in the movie that interact with the kid prove his point to where it's like every, every parent that the kid runs into are either like surprisingly abusive or very like mean. Uh, the, the lady working at that store, the, the friendlies, uh, she wound up just saying, listen here, you little shit, you leave that costume here. Otherwise you're a thief. And then I'm like, holy fuck, this is a kid you're talking to. Like, calm down. You could have easily have just said, could you please return the, the costume back? She would have given him, like, a life lesson. But, like, no, she was just out, like, fuck you, little piece of shit. Give me back that ca- Casper costume. Employee of the year there, because I'd have been like, oh, shit, that's the kid who's with the murderer. Let him go. Take whatever you want. Why are you going to try to stop him? He's driving around hitting cop cars right yeah. outside. <laughs> no, that Casper costume's the important thing that he, she needs to save, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> but what I love about that also, I was thinking about this, just like, wow, Clint Eastwood, Casper. Oh, my God, that's why he's in the Casper movie. <laughs> oh, my God, he is in the Casper movie. Right. He's clearly yeah. a fan of Casper. Yeah, yeah he must be. Wow, I never even thought of that. Well, that would be in his, Casper. like, childhood when it first came out. Right, yeah, because he grew up in, like, the 1910s or whatever when Casper was, like, new and innovative. That's the thing, he's just like, oh my god, this solved a 20-year mystery of why the fuck is he in that movie in that weird cameo scene where Rodney Dangerfield and the Crypt Keeper also show up. Yeah, Rodney Dangerfield I get, because it was Rodney Dangerfield to take anything. Crypt Keeper's out of a track, but then you see, like, Academy Award-winning Clint Eastwood. I'm like, wait a minute, what? Oh, and also Mel Gibson, but we won't go into that. Anyway. explains why uh, like most of his recent movies look like they were shot inside uh, Casper. Because everything looks really gray and shit. I mean, his inspiration clearly for filmmaking was that one Casper cartoon where he had the pet fox and it died. And he was super sad about it. Little baby Clint was like, I'm going to make all my movies like that. Super fucking depressing. <laughs> yeah, he does like to do that. I do want to talk about the little boy a little bit. Because he didn't do much as a child actor, and I don't know that he's exceptional here, but he does come across as super, like, innocent. 
Yeah, it's uh, T.J. Lawther is the child actor as yeah. Phil Buzz. He's one of those child actors who kind of did this and didn't do anything really afterward. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, because I think he's perfectly cast for this part. Uh Which is to say, he's a Jehovah's Witness kid, he feels very sheltered, and that works authentically as a way of bouncing off of Costner. He's very stable throughout the entire movie. It's obvious there are certain points where it's just like, he can deliver a line the way that Clint Eastwood want him to, to deliver it. He served his purpose well and I, I well enough and like you you can tell with certain movies where like like man that kid is like acting his or her ass off. But I thought they did a good job like in the scenes where Costa would like, you know, give him pep talks is one as uncomfortable as it was. Or the yeah. other tells him <laughs> Yeah. Or he's like, you're the new navigator, Bob. I'd rather have you as my, you know, side man than him any day. And the kid would just crack that huge smile that would just engulf his whole face. Because this kid, you could tell, like, was probably bullied. Had no friends. Like, you saw in the beginning of the movie, his someone from school at his house. And then later that night, that same kid is water ballooning his house. Like, you know, this kid probably gets picked on and teased all the time. So I thought that was kind of cool. But again... Costner's character probably realized that too and was part of his brainwashing which makes him even more diabolical but yeah the one scene well for those who might not remember this um in the movie there's a point where while uh Kevin Costner's getting stuff at a gas station his evil rival is just like hey uh, let me see your pecker boy and th- he looks down and it's just like oh it's puny and you're like immediately ooh that guy's awful he should die he does they try and reprise that thing where Kevin Costner is told by the case, just like, oh, your friend said my, my thing was puny, while he's trying to, like, basically change into his Casper costume. And Kevin Costner's like, let me see it. And I'm like, wait, why are we doing this now? Yeah, what? Right. Kevin, stop. <laughs> Kevin, no. I agree. Like, no, it's a good size for a boy your age. I'm like, oh, this, why? Well, first of all, this kid's not smart enough to be like, why do you know that? Yeah, the kid wouldn't even know. And, like, that scene is just, like, that scene is, is basically, like, a certain product placement away from, like, Here, here's our sponsorship for, for Magnum Condoms, so that way we can show off how, how big this kid's dick is. Trojan condoms, start him young. Uh, anyway, like, I get the intent, it's just still really fucking weird, and I don't know why even in 1993 it was in a movie. <laughs> I get he's not good, but still, like, that was just awkward. Clearly, he had no other intention but to, like, give the kid a self-confidence boost. But still, why does an eight-year-old know if he's got a big or small penis? Like, seriously. And why would he Why would he even care? Like, at that point, the kid's not th- like, a kid is not thinking about certain things like that. I want to steer directly away from this conversation that we're currently having. <laughs> uh, I do want to talk a bit more about some of the side characters we have. We kind of mentioned, like, Clint Eastwood and that caravan that's following him around. And while I do as I mentioned, have some issues with that just on a script level. And also, I'm sorry, Clint, you're not a Texan. You can't convincingly portray that. Always put him as that in movies where he's got the cowboy hat and everything. It never works. Like, he's a total California kid. Yeah. He is not a Texas Ranger. I'm sorry, sorry, Clint Eastwood, but you cannot be the Pee-wee. You cannot still evoke that that character you've you've had for like years now and still pretend like no, this is who I really am. Like no, you're not. You're not even a cowboy, Curtis, sir. See, yeah. I don't I don't agree with that. I think Clint Eastwood is still living off those laurels in his movies. Like in Gran Torino, he's he's old, but he's still like the the grizzled tough guy. 
I would say in Grand Serena, it's more of like playing off Dirty Harry versus Man With No Name. This is definitely trying to play more off Man With No Name, but what I find interesting, and I actually, um, I, I have a piece I'm writing on my blog that I'll mention later. This sort of feels, along with Unforgiven was the movie before this, and Bridges of Madison County was the movie that he followed this up with, all three of those movies are honestly Clint kind of coming to terms with the Man With No Name as a character. Obviously Unforgiven for certain reasons, but with a perfect world, it kind of feels like Clint, as this text stranger, is more of the lawful good trying to stop Kevin Costner. He's like a man with no name, but if he did actually have a name and an identity and all the fucked up trappings that would happen if you were the man with no name. Because obviously, right. like, man with no name from the Dollars trilogy is very much a allegorical character, someone who's, like, myth and spread around, which works great for those three movies, but with these three that he did in the 90s, I would argue it's Clint coming to terms with that character and what it would sort of mean from that, you know, at that point, like, a 30-year perspective. It feels like him nostalgically looking back at that character and showing off what kind of makes that character badass, but also the consequences of that badassery. In this case, like, Kevin Carter does some badass things in the movie, but also you see the consequences of it at every single turn. I think it's also there in Unforgiven, and to a certain extent in Bridges of Madison County, more from like a nomadic perspective he's going on, is this like photographer that travels from place to place, and, and, the, and that movie picks up women. It's, I, I will go all about it in that article. But... I don't disagree with you. I also think, especially with the three movies mentioned, that it was almost Clint Eastwood coming to terms with that he's an older man now. He's not the tough action star anymore. He's the older, more subdued, stoic presence. I mean, works for him, obviously. I mean, he's got, he's Clint fucking Eastwood. Yeah, I, I and as plus, dude, I mean, for him to be able to take almost backseat in this movie willingly says a lot about him, too. I mean, because like you said before, since Two Mules for Sister Sarah, which was got almost 25 years prior to this. He's always been the top star. Yeah, that's true. But I also would say that you can see his ideals being portrayed in the movie as well in a certain way. You can definitely feel his presence in, in the director's booth. Uh, just the way the, certain scenes are implemented and the, the messages behind what he's trying to say, uh, especially with, with him and Laura Dern. They're there, but of course he's not because he doesn't have as big of a role as he does with other movies. He kind of just doesn't have that big of a impact in terms of like his general presence in the movie i didn't definitely agree with you but even in terms of the ideals what i like is that it feels that laura dern is challenging a lot of the ideals that sort of the, a man with no name or clint's traditional western persona would embody as this you know older texas ranger he talks about just like oh i know everything lady sit down calm down and she's like no you asshole you can't just go into this half cocked you gotta, like, understand who this person is and what he would do as somebody who's holding somebody hostage before you can go do whatever the fuck all. And that's what Im makes him embrace that idea by the end of the movie where he just realizes, oh, you know what, I shouldn't be a dick. Thanks, Laura Dern. Now stay off to the side while I not be a dick and try and be a decent person. <laughs> right, and I think, I think that was one of my main problems with the Bradley Whitford scene is that was... You know, Clint's way of peppering himself in is the intimidating tough guy. It was like, this is my show, kid. You're in my office, blah, blah, blah. I know what you're here for. This isn't it. You know, like, okay, stop it. You've been doing nothing but give this lady shit this whole movie. And, all and sudden, Laura Dern gives him shit in return the whole time. No, no, I'm not saying she doesn't. But I'm saying, I'm not talking about her. I'm talking about Bradley Whitford's character where all of a sudden, you know, he's got, he comes and stands up for her. I, let's put it this way. That was unnecessary to me because I thought 
it should have been her doing it. I don't know, know that she needed Clint's character to come in and save the day. I'll, I'll definitely agree with that angle of it. At the same time, she still also puts up a fight whenever Bradley Whitford like does come on to her. She's like, fuck off, you idiot. This is she a job. She in the balls, too. I mean. Yeah, exactly. Just get the fuck away from me. I'm doing that, a goddamn job. <laughs> that is the biggest plus and the biggest, like, like minus for me of this movie is just like there, I, I wish there was more of an arc with her in, in the movie because like she kind of just it, it's like did she has like uh, the 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 two scenes um the two big ones I can remember is the one with Bradley Whitford and of course their her introduction and then her her doing her her whole spiel about where Co- Kevin Costner is, is is going and what he's his whole deal's about and then at the, at the end with the campfire and then that whole thing. Um, and then, like I, I just kind of wish there was more, more, more meat in that part, just because like she's so good in, in here. Like you said, she deconstructs like Clint Eastwood's like like her whole his basically kind of his career, his initial career basically. <laughs> and it's it's great to watch, but like man, like I just, I just, I just think I just think man, I wish we'd seen more of her in the movie, in in favor of like the other. Um, uh, Schmups who kind of just are in the background and see a few things, but don't really do as much. I just wish they stuck the landing more. I think they had the perfect like setup to tee that off, and they didn't quite land it because they want to have it be more of a like Clint faces off against Costner. I, I think you could have used that, obviously, but at the same time, putting Laura Durant to the side isn't the way to do it either. They still sink a lot of the big emotional points that needed to happen anyway. Even with that scene, the trappings around the finale can often be kind of contrived, but I almost don't really give a shit because of how good Coster and the kid really do play off of each other. Because on a sort of outline level, it goes on for a while. It's like, oh, hey, uh, look, obviously everybody surrounds Coster and the kid. The kid's gonna go up to the cops, but he's gotta go back to Coster, and they gotta go back up, and then Bradley right. has to shoot him. It, it's drawn out of it. Ob- shocker, a Clint Eastwood movie that's a bit too long. Never happens. <laughs> I'm still emotionally invested that whole time. Not so much like, oh man, Kevin Costner and this kid, this great relationship, it's gone. It's like, these two have a really strong connection that I do believe on both sides there's love there. But also, that kid's so fucked. Like, this oh, is going to scar him. him for life. <laughs> yeah, no, right. You're more, you, I'm assuming you were more like me. You're more emotionally invested on the on the sake of the child. Yes. We were like, dude, this kid doesn't understand anything that just happened to him, but it is going to come back with a vengeance. It, this kid's going to need therapy. I don't know if Jehovah's Witness believe in therapy or not, but this fucking kid needs it. I almost so want the follow-up movie like that's 25 years later about this kid now and how he's just in s- sick therapy. Like, Clint Eastwood would just glob all over that. Oh, it's so depressing. It's like Ugh. American Psycho. <laughs> kind of, you know what? Maybe that that, that works a bit, even timeline wise, because it would be the eighties probably when he's that old. Probably a tracksuit with that that Casper mask. If he found that that Casper mask in the evidence locker, and then years later it would have cut to him, like he would have been like a new like slasher for the for the modern age. <laughs> You're right. I, I want to talk about one thing before we get into the final thoughts here. You guys brought up the scene with the camper where it detached. It was like. On a, well, it was intentionally funny, but it just felt kind of out of place. The climax with the megaphone, where as soon as Clint picks it up, it's like, Wah! and he's like, God damn it, this thing's broken. What is the point of that? I think it's to relieve tension in that scene. I, I do agree it's not the best placed, but oh. I, I see the intent. I just don't think the execution worked that well. We'll get into 
Clint Eastwood fucking up comedy on a larger level in a bit. No, like, I agree, because, like, I was talking, I was referencing earlier the scene where, with the truck, like, that scene felt oddly comedic to me. Like, the way it was shot, it looked like, oh, here's everyone bumbling around in, in the, the trailer, <laughs> including Clayton Eastwood, which was somewhat funny, but then, like, you continue back to the main plot, and, like, man, this is, like, so dire, but, like, the contrast is just unsettling to me between, like, what's happening with Kevin Cosner and the kid, and then, oh, everyone's bu- bumbling around in this trailer. Like, oh, no. Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> moment, that shot especially feels like one of those moments that Clint clearly did one take of, and he's like, we're done. And I'm sure Laura Dern and Bradley were like, couldn't we do, like, one more? They felt kind of weird. No! There's a scene with the the, the family, the, the family near the farm, where uh, the wife is, is taking this blue coffee pot, and she's pouring coffee into Kevin Costner's cup. There's no coffee. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. Does anybody recognize who that is? That was the second Oracle from the Matrix movies. That explains why she she uh, is pouring out uh, empty coffee because she's right. pouring she's pouring out the data code from the Matrix. There is no coffee. <laughs> she gives him a spoon like stir your coffee with this and right. bends it with his mind. <laughs> but but you know yeah let's get into our final thoughts then on a perfect world. Sam is a perfect world. A perfect movie or not? There's a description in this movie where the characters are talking about how they both like RC Cola. And that's how I feel about this movie. It's like taking a sip of RC Cola. Like, it's okay. It won't kill me. It's there. I will say for, for a package of RC Cola, it's very well put together. I wish I could be on the same note as everyone else because, like, I, I think Kevin Costner does a great job. But he doesn't... Like, his performance still doesn't explain the certain shots. Oh, there's his hand and then there's the Casper mask and then the, the, the money... On the grass field, like, oh, wow, not how su- subtle is that? <laughs> I wish I could just rely on Kevin Costner's performance to help me, like, really love the movie. But, like, I, I honestly, everything else about it, like, the scenes we mentioned, specifically the awkwardness, I might forget, aside from maybe, like, of course, Kevin Costner's performance, because I can't even think of another performance where he's this good. Yeah, I, that's it. That's it for me. You know, this movie, like I said, I... I always remembered it always stuck in there when, from growing up and rewatching this movie now, you know, I liked it a lot when I was a kid. I wanted to watch it again, but I still like it for all the reasons I liked it when I was a kid. Like I still love Kevin Costner in this movie. I still really like the relationship between him and the kid. Even as a, you know, a man in his mid thirties, you could still sympathize with the kid more than you can anybody in the movie. Eastwood's fine here. He doesn't do much as an actor, but as a director, you know, he, he pulls off some pretty good stuff. Uh, but like we referenced, Clint Eastwood making a long, drawn-out, depressing movie. That doesn't happen. But I still think there's enough in here to make it enjoyable. And you put it on as this really slow, almost character piece. And I, I still think it's a pretty good movie. But not quite a perfect world of a movie. I wouldn't call it a perfect world of a movie. I'd call it a m- above-average world movie. I'd call it an RC world my favorite world of all. Um, mm, I do. I, I, obviously, I came out a bit more positive than either of these two gentlemen upon this watch with this, because I, I hadn't seen it before. I'd heard of it vaguely. What, what I really did like about it is, like I mentioned, it really fits in with sort of an interesting retrospective look for Eastwood about what that character that he's the most iconic for really does sort of trail and represent at this point in his career. That really works, but also I was still very much invested. I don't think it's just Kevin Costner, to be fair. I think I will give some credit to John Lee Hancock for writing a character who I think is very much on that sort of tightrope of just, like, 
we can be endeared to to some respect, but also be very terrified of, like, this. he's manipulating this kid and the roads he could go down, potentially. That carries so much in the face of a lot of issues I do have with some of the subplots and some of the other characters. That climactic sort of scene where he is confronting the family, I think is what really sold and the movie for me. Because it perfectly illustrates why, you know, Coster is the way he is, why he might have noble motivations, but also has these horrible methods that completely mess with this family in a horrible way, and also messes with the kid that leads him to shoot. I think that scene really sticks the landing on the movie overall, for how it's walking this gray morality, and how that relationship works for the kid. Some of that stuff later, like I said, in the cl- in the stuff with the sort of showdown and all that, might not work. Scenes like that one with the family, I think, give it a lot of mileage, and I think make it one of my favorite of the movies Eastwood's directed. Despite the pitfalls, it holds up far better than I would have honestly kind of feared it would. Is this a perfect world of a movie? I think it's a pretty damn good world of a movie. Gotcha. Don't drink RC Cola. The (laughs) ultimate lesson. And uh, speaking of lessons... Let's go into a movie full of life lessons. Every which way, but loose. Hey, babe, what do you think of Clint Eastwood? Oh, I think of him a lot. Well, what do you think of Clint Eastwood confiding his deepest, darkest secrets to an orangutan? Comes to sharing my feelings with a woman. My stomach just turns to royal gelatin. It's Eastwood like you've never seen him before. In a new film called... Every which way, but loose. Every which way you look, there's action, adventure, and fun. Clint Eastwood will turn you every which way but loose. Every which way but loose. Which, by the way, I pronounced in our intro incorrectly because I said any which way but loose. Versus and that's that a is sequel? well, any which way you can is the sequel. Though, oh. doesn't it make more sense if those first words are switched up? Yeah, I agree. Right, any which way but loose, that makes more grammatical sense than every which way, and vice versa with the other title. You wouldn't have that epic song that plays 9,000 times in this movie. You you mean the number one hit for three weeks in a row in 1979? (laughs) Every which way but loose. Hey, look at that caboose. (laughs) Oh, God. So, for those of you who don't know, this is the Clint Eastwood with a Monkey movie which came out in 1978, I found out not only was this, to this day, the biggest hit of a movie starring Clint Eastwood, but if you adjust for inflation, it's also one of the 250 highest-grossing films of all time. That's insane. That's insane. That's psychotic. That movie should not even be uh, in that list anywhere. <laughs> well, yeah, keep in mind, if you adjust for inflation, it's about it made $330 million. And the wow. interestingly, the only movie involving Clint Eastwood that's above that is American Sniper. It was written for Burt Reynolds. And that makes sense because this feels like this came out about a year after Smokey and the Bandit. And it feels like it. This feels like a movie that only could have come out in the wake of Smokey and the Bandit. Because it has so many of the same structural problems and major yeah. issues. But the difference is, instead of having Burt Reynolds and Sally Field to, like, carry your movie, you got Clint Eastwood, who can't carry this comedy. His orangutan carries the movie. But he gets forgotten about. Exactly. 100%. Everybody knows about this movie. I don't know that I've ever watched it, and the whole time I'm watching, going, it should be Jeffrey Lewis. 
Yes, what? I 100% agree. Jeffrey <laughs> Lewis, who's a great character actor who plays his brother in the movie, has so much more chemistry with that monkey and is so much more charming and fun. He should have started in this fucking movie with his gal pal he gets along the way on at the fruit stand or whatever. Like, a sort of a buddy comedy with like them going on, maybe them being chased by the weird Nazi group. Uh, like, that would have been a fun, hopefully, like, 89-minute-long movie. Versus right. this movie that's almost two hours and is bloated and terrible and has so much sick stuff in it. Like, we need... Sam, you haven't gotten much of a chance to talk because I know you, along with being a big Star Wars fan and a big Dinosaur Movies fan, you're a huge fan of cinematic simians. How did this sort of rank in that sort of pantheon of films for you? Oh, man. Uh... Where is Clyde for you? Oh, yeah, where does Clyde rank in the primatometer? Um, <laughs> feels so bad for Clyde, because Clyde gets his screen time cut in favor of, of Clint Eastwood saying some sick shit. Why do I live in a universe where Clint Eastwood has to have way more screen time, like almost criminal amounts of screen time, over this orangutan who is actually, like, very talented? We should give credit to the monkey actor Manus the Orangutan. Um, who Clint Eastwood described as, quote, one of the most natural actors I've ever worked with, but you had to get him on the first take because his boredom levels were very limited. So that's what Clint became as a director. Yeah. <laughs> He's shadowing an orangutan for his career. Yeah, just imagine all his uh, recent movies, but, like, he envisions all the actors as orangutans. <laughs> He's shooting Bradley Cooper in, like, in American Sniper, just like, you gotta be like Manus. And he's, Bradley Cooper's like, who the fuck's Manus? What are you Bradley, talking you, about? You know this one take, you get a banana. Do the trick I taught you with, with the, the finger gun. My whole thing, too, real quick, about the orangutan, there's no point to him having this orangutan. It serves no plot point whatsoever. <laughs> no, He won him in a fight. <laughs> Adam, there's so much yeah, plot right. relevance to that. Ooh. <laughs> Who gives a shit? It could have easily been, I won this truck in a fight. That's why I love it so much. Like, I love the fact that he got this this uh, Orientan in a different movie. Because it sounded like he got it in, like, a spinoff off of Mad Max or something. That's uh, That sounds like a way better movie is a dude who's, like, under, who's underground fighting. He's like, well, you won. Here's your prize. He's like, what the fuck? An orangutan? What am I going to do with an orangutan? I'm do this. <laughs> that sounds like a way better movie. <laughs> Oh, when I was talking about that, I was just like, why am I not seeing this movie? Right, I want to see who he fought to win the orangutan. Like, who was the original owner of the orangutan? Guys, the sales said, we need the prequel all the loose ways about <laughs> Clint Eastwood getting ways. the orangutan. <laughs> yeah, the, the orangutan, and that's the thing this movie is obviously known for. It's the Clint Eastwood orangutan movie, like we said. I always thought of it that he was a truck driver and the orangutan was like his partner in the truck. You're pitching basically over the top, but with Clint Eastwood and Orangutan, which right, is the best movie ever. I thought it was. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even kidding. Instead of what I'm watching, I'm waiting for like some crazy Orangutan hijinks. You don't really get any. Like, I, I wanted to see the Orangutan dressed as like a, a female and Clint Eastwood. Like, this is my wife, you know, to sneak into a place where you got to have a partner with you. Or this is my son, so they can get to an amusement park or something goofy. <laughs> you know, something silly. None of that. <laughs> it's a shame when uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back is a better monkey movie than you are. They got the better orangutan. We, we talk about Clyde being wasted here, and it's like, why is Clyde wasted, guys? Well, because, um, you know how when, you know, Smoking the Bandit, there isn't much of any plot, and it's just sort of, like, aimlessly wandering around? This movie has a similar aesthetic to it, except they have ten different subplots at the same time. Because you've got, like, Clint 
going after Sandra Locke as this country singer who he's obsessed with and follows around and slut shames, which will be his wife. Yes, she was his wife at the time. And I looked up, I get most of my trivia for our show notes from IMDb. There is a fucked up piece of trivia about the stupid Clint Eastwood monkey movie about a parent pregnant or something. And he made her get like an abortion. abortion. Yeah. Oh, good God. It's really fucked up. I don't want to go too far into it, but it's really messed up. But, and then you've also got like, Clint and Jeffrey Lewis's mother, who's like getting people. Which I will say this: Ruth Gordon, like, is one of the few oases of quality in this movie. It's not a good character, but I think no, she—it's—it's it's Granny from the Beverly Hillbillies for the most part, right? But she's committed to it, and it shows how great Ruth Gordon was as an actress, making the most out of just such shitty material, especially <laughs> the scene where, like, she has the gang of Nazi punks who are chasing after Clint Eastwood and Jeffrey Lewis come up to her doorstep and fuck with their property, and then she starts shooting her shotgun and making their motorcycles explode, and it turns right. into a weird, like, handheld scene that I'm just like, did this just turn into a Bourne movie? Where it's and when she's shooting it, and you shit. can see the shotgun because the kick clearly just <laughs> jumping out of her hands. Yep. <laughs> like, 100%. It looks like her face where she's like, oh, shit. Ripping tarot, lady. She got kind of screwed over in the middle of the movie where everything else was happening, but like they they focused on the the billion upon billions of subplots instead of her, and I felt bad for her because just like she did carry her the scenes she was in uh, to a point where it was just like I would rather just follow her the entire time. It shows that she is an Oscar worthy actress. Also, trivia: a nominated screenwriter. Really. Yes, for um, the movie Adam's Rib, which is a movie about a Spencer Tracy comedy with uh, Catherine Hepburn about it's like a battle of the sexes in a courtroom in ni- 1949. Trailblazer, Ruth Gordon. Anyway, uh, but, <laughs> I agree with what you're talking about, Sam. Especially like in the middle of like our big climax, where the like Nazi punks are like fighting Clint Eastwood and Jeffrey Lewis, they suddenly give a shit about her again. Where it's like, oh, here's her taking her license photo. Like, remember this subplot from like 20 minutes ago? <laughs> Oh, longer. Longer. That's true, 40 minutes ago. That's yeah, it was when they <laughs> first left. She's like, who's going to take me to get my license? That was like, yeah, it was a good 40 minutes prior. Between the time I, I was ha- I was watching the movie, which was 40 minutes, and then my out-of-body out of body experience, which was like 50, I'd say it was like an hour for me. <laughs> right, exactly. That's what it feels yeah. like. Uh, but And then also, we need to talk more, obviously, about the Nazi punks who show up for yeah. whatever. Like, it's just widows. like... The Black Widows, yeah, our gang that follows after these guys. That's such a lazy way of getting any kind of conflict into the story. It was so stupid. That was bad. I'd argue that the two cops were even worse. Yeah, I agree, because they have this whole thing where two cops are chasing them. Another subplot we forgot to mention. There's literally a point where there's a, the black cop finds, like, a rattlesnake in the middle of the forest when they're trying to chase after Clint Eastwood, and he's like, feet don't fail me now! I'm like, oh. Because the whole thing was they were there just as a plot device, you know, Clint Eastwood and the girl. So he goes in the bar and he's looking for a fight and he beats up these two guys, which he started the fight purposely, beats up the guys and, you know, you're not going to call the cops. Those are the cops. Holy shit. He's got to fuck. And you're like, okay. I'm so beefy and strong. I beat up these cops. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah, I love the crushing the peanuts scene, where it shows Clint Eastwood's bicep, and the one guy's like, "Oh boy!" 
And that is one of the worst edits ever, where the guy gets thrown out of the jukebox, and he's, they still have that shot, and all of a sudden he's in a different position. It's like, you couldn't cut to Clint? You couldn't? You only get one take because it rang a tan. Well, no, well, to be fair, this, this was not directed by Clint. This was a movie that he was hired for as a star. He had directed a few movies before this. Oh, that's right. Right, uh, but he this is the director he'd worked with before, uh, James Fargo. And I mean, all the credits to Clint were as much as he's a one-take wonder, he at least has more good one-takes than bad. Whereas this case, yeah. every take is terrible. Every take is fucking bad. And the thing, I mean, Clint Eastwood is, he doesn't even give a shit about this movie. Like, he's sleepwalking through this movie. Even the fight scenes are so badly done. Like, how obvious is that he's pulling his punches, and there's like, you know, six inches of air between his fists and a face when he's supposedly hitting them? I think it's still bad, but for a sort of 180 reason, where... I just think Clint looks lost this whole movie. I don't think he's not trying. It's just more he's just like, I don't know what I'm trying here. I've never done a comedy before. Because, like, Clint's been funny in movies, but it's more of, like, to relieve a dramatic situation and it works for the character. Like, even A Few Dollars More has one of my favorites where he has dynamite and he just, like, waves at that guy and then disappears down (laughs) before it explodes. Great comedic moment. But it works because Clint knows who the character is versus he just looks completely like, I'm in the fucking middle of the ocean with a raft and it's fucking deflating. I don't know what's happening, James. James, help me. I don't know what I'm doing. And, like, especially in scenes, like, where he confronts Sandra Locke in, like, the lowest point of this terrible movie, where this whole time Clint's chasing after her and she, she was upfront with him about, like, hey, look, I like to sleep around. I like going around, finding guys to guys because I'm on the road a lot. My boyfriend understands all this other stuff. Like, you know, you could potentially have issues with how she kind of does that, Clint, but at the same time, respect her as a person. You just forgot that part about respecting her as a person, and then you talk down to her about, like, well, I'm the only guy who gave a shit about you outside the bed. Like, no, you didn't. Right, Shut the fuck up. 100%. <laughs> she told you exactly what the what the fucking gist was, and you're like, nope, she loves me. I'm going to keep going after her. Yes! Well, this, this is all your fault. <laughs> no, wait, hashtag not all men. What is it, <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's what this movie felt like to me. This is like, whenever you hear your dad talk about, like, man, things are so much simpler back then. Show show this movie. You know what? Show this movie to classes. Just to show the period in which this is what masculinity is. It's about taking your shirt off with your schlubby-ass fucking schlubby body and just punching the other guy for no discernible reason while wearing your shitty fucking blue jean pants that'll make you look really fucking ugly. <laughs> it's like... Oh, and if you bet a woman, even if she tells you she's not really looking for a relationship, she's lying to you. Because yeah, you bet her that well. And you know what? If she has a problem with the Southwestern mentality, just put, like, some dentures in her chowder. Yeah, because she's absolutely. not gonna, she's not gonna have sex with you. So therefore, you feel more gratified. There you go. Well, and then even on just a filmmaking level, it James Fargo makes this weird decision where like Clint confronts her, just like, "Well, I'm the only guy that ever cared about you outside of the bedroom," and she completely understandably starts saying like, "How fucking dare you!" and gets like hysterical and angry for all the right reasons. And for some reason, he wants to shoot it at like where we're from. Clint's perspective of her, like, trying to punch him and kick him around, and then also shots of Clint getting, like, battered, on a clear filmmaking level, is trying to put her in this menacing stance for being 100% understandable. And it's such a, like, low, Uh, scummy move. Maybe uh, what I got from it was that 
you know, he got through to her and she does actually love him, even though she's saying, I hate you. Like, like I haven't seen it, but I, I did a little bit of research. I know the characters in the sequel. So I think it was more or less, no, he was right. He got through to her and she's self-destructing because now her world has come crumbling down. I mean, either way, it's terrible. <laughs> either oh, way, it's gross. horrible. Yeah, it's fucking stupid. <laughs> this is our clearly like our critical interpretations of art. Sam, what was your interpretation of this <laughs> brilliant scene <laughs> from monkey, every which way but loose? What about the monkey? Oh, I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we broke Sam with this movie, everybody. This movie, like, it's like, there was, like, okay, you want to know the scene that really broke me was the scene, like, where there, where it was Clint Eastwood and Clyde in the strip club. And there's a moment, no dialogue, just Clint Eastwood and Clyde just going throughout town, just, just having, having a good time. Then... The conclusion to this is Clint Eastwood waking up his his best friend and his girlfriend and saying, "Hey, we have to get Clyde get laid." Yeah, they, you, no, you're 100. And by the way, it's his brother, not even his best friend. Which, believe me, for the first 40 minutes of the movie, I thought it was his best. Oh, friend. that's true. Yeah, I keep forgetting that. <laughs> yeah, it's right. yeah, I like how they take that detour all of a sudden. Like, oh, hey, remember he's got an orangutan and it's horny. He's got to get it laid. Like, what the fuck is the point of any of that? I mean, in a movie where you would actually have Manus as your second build person, but the problem is that it's surrounded by all these weird subplots that feel so gangly. And trivia, this was rejected by every studio when it was initially pitched to people. Shocking. I don't know why. Like, what, what... what is so damning about this? <laughs> I know. I, I'm at a loss for words. I know. What, what's so just puzzling is just how many of these different turns... It feels very much like a movie that was improvised on the spot, which works... It gives me far more respect for something like Smoking and the Bandit, where that was the case, where there barely was a script, and Burt Reynolds and Sally Field were like, fuck it, let's make this better. It shows that like they would have, you know, in these roles, maybe not advance some of the weird backwards politics of it, but at least made it more entertaining. Like, Sam, would you agree that Burt Reynolds would be a much better lead than Eastwood here? Well, like, shit, like, anything would have been better. I would have had Dom DeLuise dressed as an orangutan. <laughs> that was better. We were talking about the whole, like, Clint Eastwood sees everyone as an orangutan, right? But imagine that with Burton Reynolds seeing his his, his friend in an in orangutan suit and just like, no, he's an orangutan. It's like, no, I'm clearly your friend. Like, no, you're an orangutan. <laughs> uh, no, it would have totally made more sense for Burt Reynolds in this movie. And, and honestly, Sally Field, because Burt Reynolds and Sally Field had more chemistry than these people who are actually married. Yeah, that's the charm in Soaking the Band is you can kind of see these two people falling in love with each other in context of the movie versus in this movie, this feels like two people who are in a very bitter relationship, which, given what I said before, seems yeah. very true. Um, but yeah, it just, this feels so just incongruous and really incapable of coming together on any level, especially what was that fucking ending where it's just like, well, Sandra Locke beat me up and here are our enemies on the sides, like licking their wounds but at least we got each other right we're going home every which way but loose he turned me every which you know like what the wait a minute there was no resolution period no you gotta save it for any which way you can Adam. i will not watch it and then, no. and then you get to the reboot which is just called loose <laughs> that's true yeah. yeah it's like logan loose loose <laughs> starring scott eastwood Oh, God. Let's get into our final thoughts while you have the floor added. Yeah. Yeah. Final thoughts. First of all, 
Clint Eastwood is a very unlikable character in the movie. Not even the shit that he does in the movie, but reading what was happening behind the scenes even jaded me a little bit more on the film. And I know it shouldn't, but it did. Because it's that bad. Um, the monkey is barely in it. And when he is, it's for no reason. Like, there's no throw a line with the monkey. It's a throwaway character. Like I said before, it could have been something just as easy as the pickup truck he drives the whole movie that he wanted to bet. Like a Millennium Falcon sort of deal. Would have been way better with Jeffrey Lewis as the star. Because Jeffrey Lewis, Lewis, to me, other than Ma, is the most endearing character in the movie. Um, and we didn't say her by name, but even Beverly D'Angelo, as his girlfriend, is actually pretty good in it. She doesn't get a lot to do, but she's decent in it. But other than that, man, I mean, this is just a bad movie. This is definitely, A, a movie of its time, but B, there are so many fans still of this movie. If you liked this movie when you were a kid, ask you to watch it again and definitely reassess because it is not a good movie. There's nothing in it that works. By the way, I didn't even, re- I completely forgot that it was Beverly D'Angelo, which that's weird when I'm watching a movie with Beverly D'Angelo and you're making me forget about her because of how much of a mishmash garbage movie this is. Because <laughs> she's great, usually. But she, Well, I mean, dude, you gotta figure out her first major interaction with anybody of the main cast is a tit joke. Yeah. You like these cantaloupes? Oh, they're the best i ever seen. You're like, oh, oh for God's sake. <laughs> You'd get vacation later, Beverly. They'd give you much more to do. Anyway, uh, Sam, your final thoughts on every which way but loose. I want to get loose from the noose. That's what I feel. <laughs> Damn. This is f- fucking movie. I hate it. I hate it a lot, actually. <laughs> like, honestly, like, thinking about this movie. So, like, there's a there's a fight scene in, in the middle of this movie, and you can check on Twitter, because I did some, where basically I cut fights together with dialogue from the beloved PS2 game, Devil May Cry 3, and I tried to see if I can get any enjoyment out of that, and I barely got something out of it. I needed to do something, because I cannot just watch this fucking close to, like, two-and-a-half-hour movie about Clint Eastwood refusing to have his orangutan have more screen time than him, and on top of that, saying the most, like, misogynistic, just just vile stuff. Like, it doesn't help that you mostly see a bunch of, like, shirtless, like, middle-aged guys who say, hey, man, I can beat you up. Like, that. La- I, we didn't talk about this. That last fight with that other guy, like, that was so sad. That was just so sad and embarrassing to watch for both of them. Especially when it starts off with that really, really bad good, the bad, and the ugly joke where they play like the bit of the new Morricone parody. They feels... did that a lot in this movie, dude. They did. They, did. they had nothing. They had nothing. <laughs> <laughs> they fucking had nothing despite having everything because that's what it felt like. I felt like, what's the best way to put this? It's a bad movie. That's probably the best It's one. a bad movie, but it's also a movie where I was watching it and it felt like I was having a fever dream. And then I remembered I'm still here sitting there watching this movie where Clint Eastwood is stalking this one country singer while these Nazi bike gang try to find them. And then you have the black cop who's being stereotypically, like, foolish. You're just going to have a really bad time. I fucking hate it. I'm done. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. You had such a great time, I'm sure, with our your double feature scene. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, I can't really add much beyond what you two said, um, except you're making a movie where a guy teams up with a monkey, and for some reason you're like, you know what, that's not enough. 
you you couldn't even be on the level of Dunstan checks in. This is Dunstan <laughs> checks out, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, no. This, that's the sad thing. I've seen so many movies of, like, people teaming up with monkeys. And I always thought it was cheap. I always thought it was lower than, like, oh, God, this, this is so dumb. Why are you teaming up with a monkey? This movie gives me infinitely more respect for any of those movies. Like, I'm sorry, Ed, the fucking Matt LeBlanc with a chimp who plays baseball movie. You at least committed to your premise, as opposed to this movie. That doesn't at all. Despite the best efforts of people like Jeffrey Lewis or Ruth Gordon, um, it's just, no one can save this. And the fact that it's, with adjusting for inflation, one of the highest grossing movies of all time is sad. It's quite frankly incredibly sad. Every which way but loose, baby. You're every which way but loose. <laughs> and inside, the fire's burning! On that whimper, that is the end of our Clone Eastwood double feature for the evening. Um, and we have some feedback to read. And, man, you guys had a lot of feedback related to Clint Eastwood. And this has got to be one this... of our uh, biggest feedbacks, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I think it's one of the bigger feedbacks. And uh, first up, we had um, Will Torres say, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is the best film he's in. Unforgiven is the best film he has made. And Gran Torino is hilarious, but not as hilarious as that fake baby in American Sniper. You saw that fake baby, right? It was played by Bradley Cooper. Brian Kane says, uh, for his favorite, Letters from Iwo Jima is probably my favorite war film of all time. It's truly incredible to see such a, a reverence toward the Japanese soldiers trapped in a losing battle. I wish more movies would explore the humanity of the conscripts of the Axis powers. Uh, Jonathan Habton McHale, friend of the show, says, Gran Torino is the best of his more recent movies, perhaps his last good movie? And Kara Holden actually responded to that, saying, Although not as good, I do enjoy Trouble with the Curve. Uh, Scott Johnson says, High Plains Drifter has one of the best endings in a movie I've ever seen, although the film has some troubling moments that would not be easy to watch today. Bill Gabriel says, Least favorite is a toss-up between Every Which Way But Loose and its sequel, and Bronco Billy. Favorite has to be Dirty Harry. A uh, friend of the show, Dan Chambos, says, I-, I love Dirty Harry. My dad showed me it when I was a kid. He always gets his man. Uh, Nate Thomas says, Favorites, Outlaw Josie Wales, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Unforgiven, Every Which Way But Loose, In the Line of Fire, High Plains Drifter. And then for his worst, he says, Bloodwork, Pink Cadillac, The Rookie, and Hereafter. Matt Kozlowski says, Million Dollar Baby may be his best hands down. I know I will get shit for this, but Unforgiven is my least favorite. Stephen D. at Waiting FTH says, uh, Where Eagles Dare, The Outlaw Josie Wales, and Dirty Harry would be my top three. The Deadpool and The Rookie are way, way, way below that. Uh, so yeah, that's a lot of diverse uh, range of opinions. <laughs> to say okay. the least. Two, right off the bat, really jump at me. Hey, Nate, dude, no. <laughs> you can't have that your favorites, man. You, you, you can't, because it's not good. He He's the type of person that I was talking about earlier. Like, maybe rewatch it. If you can get through it and still enjoy it, then, I mean, good on you. And then the very next one, Unforgiven. Yeah, you're going to get shit for that. Not only is Unforgiven one of the best westerns, it's also one of the best movies to come out in the last 30 years. That movie does such a great job of deconstructing just what he thinks of, like, the western mythology in general. After being the guy who sort of crystallized it in sort of a postmodern perspective in, like, the 60s. Admittingly, I hadn't seen the first two in the Dollars trilogy, um, A Fistful of Dollars and a, for a Few Dollars More, until I, we were prepping for this episode. 
I, I, I still think I love Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, but especially For a Few Dollars More is far more underrated. That one is so well put together. Him and Lee Van Cleef playing off each other. Oh, yeah, it's, I agree. Yeah. It's a damn good trilogy. Like, regardless of if you love one or the other the most, like, you're, you're in for a great time with all three, I'd, I'd argue. Mm-hmm. And Lee Van Cleef is one of the greatest Western actors of all time. <laughs> the best cowboy from New Jersey. Um, but, Sam, what are some of your favorites that we haven't maybe mentioned? Well, I'll tell you right now, the, this car person should probably not even mention Trouble with the Curve, because that's one of the worst ones I've seen in recent memory. At the end, did you know Clint Eastwood just fucking takes Amy Adams' phone and just chucks it in a dumpster bin? Oh, no, sorry. So she chucks her phone into a dumpster because Clint Eastwood's like, technology bad, technology no good, fire good. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like, The Man Ugly is not just great for because of Clint Eastwood, but it's also great because of Sergio Leone's direction, and the combination mm-hmm. with this Italian, and of course it spawned the spaghetti western genre. That genre sticks to me more than just general westerns, because the problem with general westerns is that you you have your your standard ones that, that have these racial undertones <laughs> that like I never I've never been a big fan of, especially like the John Wayne ones that I, I've aside from True Grid, there's not one I can think of that I, that I actually enjoyed. The Good and Bad and Ugly, it was such a weird mishmash of like this Italian director coming in with his own vision. And then Clint Eastwood uh, coming in to like form this this I'd argue groundbreaking character, and it, it it all meshed together in a way that I really adore. That's not like when you and when you travel down like Southwest, it's like man, like this doesn't look even resemble that. And like no, of course not, because it's like I like, argue it's a more romanticized like fantastical rendition. What works about those movies is that obviously not only was there sort of the inspiration of like that was a decline in the Western genre in America, but also you had at the same time the sudden like jolt of attention in international cinema with uh, Kira Kurosawa, which clearly a fistful of dollars, especially it's just like, hey man, you like your Jimbo? I get it. This is your Jimbo fan fiction, uh, man with no name. OC don't steal because that's, <laughs> I mean, that's what it is basically. But in the in a really fun, entertaining way, still. But that's uh, but that works for both par- parties in all honesty because that's what you want to do because you want to be inspired and be like, man, I want to make my own version, and you wind up doing something that's feels new. It, it's the confluence of all those styles mismatching together in a beautiful way where it feels yeah. like you mentioned. It feels it's more of like a fantasy quest movie, any of those ones necessarily a western. And I think they did for what westerns what they did with slasher movies, the Italian, the Giallo movies, that little bit of weird otherworldly tinge on it. Like it's not pure fantasy, but it's just through a different set of eyes who have not necessarily experienced that, but they love the genre. So this is their take on it. And I, I, I agree with Sam. I think the Spaghetti Western is one of the most underrated genres or subgenres. Shoutouts to Ennio Morricone, uh, who oh, the score. Oh, my God. Ecstasy yeah. of Gold is one of my favorite like tracks of all time. Maybe even uh-huh. be my favorite one. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Especially how like he integrates the score in for a few dollars more with the watch thing that comes up. That's such that's so ingenious. It's so suddenly like sends a jolt through your spine. Think yeah. about it. You get pumped up watching a Western. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it jacks your shit up. And, and I mean, you can also see, like, speaking of, someone mentioned, uh, Scott, a uh, friend of the show, mentioned High Plane Stricter, because that was one of the first movies Clint Eastwood directed, was that one. And you can tell he was influenced by that, and also, like, Don Siegel and John Ford. But at the same time, that movie, I agree, a very mixed bag for me, where you have, like, such interesting, like, Western moments and a great ending. And also Jeffrey Lewis, by the way, is in that, yep. too. Speaking of misogynistic stuff, um, The Rape... In that movie, yeah, it's pretty intense. 
especially given like what the twist is, it feels weird. Where it's like, I, I guess we're siding with them, but also rapist revenge thing. It's weird. I, <laughs> right. That's so complicated. That, that, that yeah. movie's very like uneven for me, and like literally huge highs, super low lows. Nate's one. The outlaw Josie Wales. I love the outlaw Josie Wales. I think that is such a fantastic movie. Have you guys seen that one? Actually, no. I have not seen that one. I saw Josie and the Pussycats. And yeah, you've basically seen it then. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, someone mentioned here Dirty Harry, and I've only seen the first Dirty Harry. I dig the first Dirty Harry, but really, I haven't seen the sequels more because that movie works so well as, like, it's a movie about a guy who's experienced being a cop in this shitty place and fucking hates it, and then he literally throws down his badge at the end of the movie. I don't know where you really go from there. You Like, like you and I talked about a couple days ago you they literally went basically the charles brownson route or even like a rambo route where they just made the stakes so much higher and crazier where they they gotta get harry callahan back he's the only one who can curb this violence they just got too extreme like the first one's great but yeah they just got so silly the sequels like Mm -hmm. enough Especially shout out to, um, what's his face, Frank from Hellraiser as the villain in Dirty Harry. Andrew Robinson, terrifying. Yeah, he was fantastic. Great in that movie. He's basically the Zodiac Killer. I forgot what his name was in that movie, but yep. that's what they build him after. Yeah. Basically. Uh, also, uh, Letters from Iwo Jima. I do love that movie. I think that one that's gets swept under the rug too much. It's a great movie. Yeah. But I do think with the companion piece of Flags of Our Fathers, I think they work really well together. See, I that, that's my problem, is, like, Flags of Our Fathers, I think, is so much more of a traditional war movie. It's fine. I don't think it's a bad war movie. But I'm just watching it like, man, I wish it was, like, watching Save It Private Ryan or something like no. that. Versus Iwo Jima is so much more of a unique perspective I've never seen, especially in, like, a movie made by an American director about those guys in Japan who were on the other side. Like, you never really thought about that, and that's so ingenious. It does elevate that... You know, flags of our fathers. I agree. That's, but... that's what I meant. Yeah, that, that's right. a, that, that's an unfortunate thing because, like, uh, watching his recent stuff, like personally for me, I don't think he ever took the lessons he gained from like Sergio Leone in terms of, like his film style and just like melding it together with a different sort of like, like saying this this could be bad in, in his hands certainly, like especially melding it with different cultures. But I think in certain cases it can actually work and be beneficial and actually make his, his film style be more interesting as opposed to like just having the same sort of like kind of blandish grayish look so like a good portion of them yeah especially around like million dollar baby that's what where that really started yeah I, just... I, I i agree with you yeah after million dollar baby that kind of became his formula which worked for million dollar baby and then it's just like he just kept doing that and it never quite elevated and to the the point where it's stuff like i remember <laughs> sully has one of my favorite bad movie moments in an Oscar movie where Aaron Eckhart, God bless him, he's like, oh, I'm in a Clint Eastwood movie, I'm gonna rise back up, and they're showing the simulation of the crash, and they're just like, oh, well, the simulation shows this, and Aaron Eckhart's like, this was no video game! I'm like, oh, Um, but also we had a bit of feedback from our last episode, our holiday episode, from Miss Mallory Somerville, which this is a few tweets that she had tweeted, um, at Rosemary's Bay, which by the way, I dig that Twitter handle. Um, she said, you need to get Adam to actually use Twitter. I want to roast him for his bad Emmett Otter takes. My cousin said, Emmett Otter's jug band Christmas was dull, so if anyone wants to form a little family with me before the holidays, I'm suddenly free. (laughs) He's got a hole in his washtub. Also, do you remember a Muppet Family Christmas? 
All right, well, first of all, Mallory, <laughs> I'm your way older cousin. Show me some goddamn respect. Time for an <laughs> Emin Otter beatdown. Second of all, shut up. I'll tell you what, write into the show again, and uh, you pick my Twitter name, and I'll use it. And I promise you I will be active on it for 30 days. So I'm calling you out. Yeah, oh, I got shit, a hole in my, in my washed up, because I use it for th- for things. Burnett, of course I remember Muppet Family Christmas. Who doesn't remember Muppet Family Christmas? You know what? You're a Muppet. <laughs> yeah, take it. I actually hadn't seen that special until it was not too long after I saw Eminator in college. I'm like, oh, what's another like Muppet Christmas thing? And that's a weird special where I don't think they could ever technically release that again on video because of the weird no. white stuff now. Because yeah, that's yeah. a special for those of you who don't know, where the Muppets go to like have a family Christmas at it's like Fozzie Bear's mom's house. Uh, when she's trying to leave and go to fucking Florida, <laughs> which I love. It's like, oh, we're going to have Christmas with Ma. Oh, I'm going to Florida. Ah, fuck, they're here. <laughs> um, and then not only do all the Muppets show up, but then the Sesame Street gang shows up. And then Kermit at one point goes down, like, uh, through a well or whatever and ends up in Fraggle Rock. Marvel's most ambitious crossover couldn't compete with a Muppet Family Christmas. <laughs> but, uh, Sam, I know you're an Emmett Otter fan as well. I absolutely adore it, and you can see the the inspiration behind that for the Dark Crystal. Yeah, you definitely see the inspiration that how it builds off toward that, and it's just like you care so much about like Ma and the entire band, and like yeah, we're about not my band, like even them, like they have so much character and, and charm to them. <laughs> like it's it's uh, it's just everyone should just watch that movie at least once a year because like it's it's worth here's the thing of all these these goddamn hallmark christmas movies that come out it's just like watch watch that one in, instead uh just just make time for that one because it's it's just such a nice movie to watch so well, i hope that was you fucking co-host then <laughs> <laughs> oh oh fuck <laughs> now you got pressure sam <laughs> oh no <laughs> Next episode with Sam. Any which way you can. Anyway. <laughs> Any which way you can get this movie off my brain. We desperately need to head out of this episode. But before we do, we want to announce something um, on the Facebook page and the Twitter page at DEDBpod, which, by the way, is where you can find our little um, questionnaires about, hey, what's your favorite or least favorite for our, any individual topic? We post those on Monday. But from the Sunday when you're listening to this episode, if it's the first week, if if, this, if you're listening later, ignore this. We put out a poll because Adam and I have been discussing about potentially doing a format change for the show. Where obviously, as you heard the intro of this episode, we did our picking of our movies. We've considered not having it, that picking for the individual episode be at the beginning and instead doing uh, the picking for the next episode at the end. So, for example... In the case of we just did our holiday special and then the Clint Eastwood thing, rather than doing the Clint Eastwood picking at the beginning of the Clint Eastwood episode, we would potentially have done a picking for the Clint Eastwood movies at the end of the holiday special episode and then lead into our Clint Eastwood episode the next week. We've discussed doing this and we wanted to put it to a vote to all of our loyal listeners out there. The poll will be up for a week. So it's already been two days in, if you're listening to this on the day we're releasing this, and we recommend you all go out there and go ahead and vote, because we would like to hear your voice in this big change, potentially, for the show. It could be something cool to maybe leave the people hanging, or if you like the current format, that's great, too. It lets us know what's been working. And that's on both Twitter and Facebook, if you don't use one or the other, for your own personal religious reasons, we get it. Uh, In any case, um, go ahead and vote there. Also, you can, of course, submit feedback to us uh, via the Twitter and Facebook page, and also at Double Edge Double Bill, our Gmail account. Um, But 
to head out of the episode, we want to thank Chris Oliver for the use of his music for the intro and outro of our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Also, thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. She accepts commissions at fiverr2rs.com slash eescarta. And, of course, we want to thank Mr. Sam Bertuxen, our most loyal guest host. Sam, uh, anybody can find you at Bertuxen on the internet, pretty much, right? Yeah, what's web below's... <laughs> He's in a catatonic state. Yeah, on yeah, like yeah, Twitter yeah. and I guess Tumblr if you're still He's using that. If you're using Tumblr right now, uh, make sure you don't look at any uh, nipples because that shit's banned, uh, apparently. <laughs> so, like, if you want to not watch the movie and have a, a, a slightly better time, watch the clip I, I made with the. Uh, yeah, that was like, very funny. Every every witch trigger but loose. Uh, <laughs> we'll probably retweet that on the Twitter page because it was pretty I, fucking awesome. I think we have to. Yeah. We have yeah. to, clearly. I, 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 I had I, I needed to do something after our movie because uh, like I was just like I, I spent I spent all this time watching the, the, the shitty uh, Clint Eastwood movie with the underrepresented uh, orangutan. So what can I do? <laughs> We're glad we could invite you on for a fun time again. Along with a Twitter account for the show, I'm also on Twitter at not the who's Tommy. The blog where I write stuff is Mariani thomas.wordpress.com and I was kind of obliquely referencing earlier around the time this episode would be released I would put out my sort of dissertation as it were on Unforgiven, A Perfect World and then also Bridges of Madison County which I've decided to call my um, Clint Eastwood's Men With No Aim trilogy Uh, it's clever clever. Um, that'll be out around the time before the mule comes out but after this episode probably comes out and I'll probably link it also on Twitter and amongst other things Um, but also uh, you can find Adam uh, somewhere drifting into the west yeah you're not gonna find me and I I like it that way ba da ba 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 I'm loving it (laughs) for sure (laughs) Um, and also make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes Uh, rate and review us there and on any platform uh, like we're on spotify as well we're on the youtubes uh, amongst other things uh the more that you rate or share or spread the word about the show the more that we get seen and we love being seen because like clint eastwood we are ego-driven maniacs mm-hmm. absolutely you sons of bitches yep yeah, uh, but it's time to throw our badges to the side shoot some guy in the heart and walk off into a lack of a ending with our orangutan guys. They wish we loose. This movie fucking sucked. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Inside my paycheck's burning. <laughs>